Hello and welcome to the Fat-Tailed Thoughts podcast. We're on episode 18. I'm your co-host, Stephen Dickens. I'm joined, as always, by Jared Clee. Hey, Jared, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen, how are you? Yeah, very good, very good. So if you're a new listener to the podcast, this is the Fat-Tailed Thoughts podcast where we cover the makings and workings of money, fintech, and crypto. Today we're talking about the future of markets for startup equity. Um, We're on a multi-part series, so if you're diving in here, highly recommend you go back and read the newsletter and look at our previous episodes. What is this now, the fourth episode we've covered startup equity? And and, and I'm sure there'll be more to come at some point in the future. Uh, This is a deep well we can continue to drain, so I think there's more to come here. So Apologies if you're kind of listening to this out of sequence. It will make sense as a standalone, but highly recommend you go back and check out the Rose other episodes. So a couple of big topics for today. Get us orientated here, Jared. What are the listeners going to expect from the show today? So, Stephen, where, where we had gone in the previous episodes is really understanding what equity is and, and how to think about it as an employee, as a founder, how it can be structured. We then evolved to like companies are taking 12 years to go public now on average, which means that if you're if you're an early employee, you might be equity rich, but you're cash poor. How do you get cash? And, and there's the traditional way, secondary markets, you literally sell your equity, whole bunch of nuance to that. But there's a there's a whole emerging market of other ways you can do it. You can uh, borrow against it. You can borrow against your options and actually own the underlying equity, bunch of really cool stuff. That's what we went through in, in the last couple discussions, last couple letters. But all that's really a today statement. Yes, those are young markets and, and they're growing, but there is a tremendous wealth of stuff happening around startup equity as this market grows and grows and grows and grows. So the focus of this week, Stephen, is really looking at what does the long term actually entail? What are those underlying trends, which is where we'll start? This is a rising tide. And then, okay, we've got a rapidly growing market. What does that actually mean? Where do we see startups starting to emerge? Where do we expect people to build as this market gets bigger and bigger and bigger? So let's go there first on that trend section. I think you identified in the newsletter three big trends. So let's go through those. Let's maybe spend the next sort of 10 minutes there, go through those topics and then we'll pivot on to what we can expect as those predictions and what's next. So trend number one, what what and what are this that big topic you think you're seeing as as where we're going forward from here? You have to start with the amount of money that's flowing into startups, Stephen. It's more, it, it, more and more, I think. More, more and more. That's <laughs> the, the it's gonna be the theme of the entire discussion here. It, it, it's the 2021 smashed. Every venture capital record on the books, the amount of money that came in, the number of rounds that got done, the value of the, of the private companies, the number of investors. I mean, take a look. I don't care what metric you pick. It absolutely smashed every single record. And Stephen, these were not like this wasn't like an incremental ooh 2021 was slightly bigger. If you start with the the funding numbers, how many dollars flowed into startups? It was over 600 billion dollars this past year. To help put that in context, look at the public markets. I US IPOs 
300 billion. It's half the size of the money that flowed into startups this year. Look at 2020, the year before, which was one of the largest years on record. This is the, the amount of money that came in this year, 90% bigger than last year. I mean, these are mind-blowing numbers for an industry that's been growing at 25% a year for over a decade, Stephen. It's what we, we've 10x this in, in a decade. It's wild. So it's it's more money, more companies, crucially for this discussion, more people working at those companies that have got the need to pull out their equity and convert that to cash. That, so that's exactly and Steve, I just, I want to hammer on that one. When we talk about more startups, when we talk about bigger startups staying private longer, that has a multiplier effect on everything else we're going to talk about. This isn't linear. This is exponential. One more startup means tens, hundreds more employees that own equity. It means tens, hundreds more investors that own equity in startups. It's these numbers get much bigger, much faster. It's not just the dollar figures. It's the number of people involved. And that becomes critical for the journey we're going to go on because that means there's more people holding equity. They're holding that equity for longer and there's a much greater demand for cash. There's a multiple as many people that want cash sooner. I think that's the key theme here. And you touched on it. You know, a startup could be 100 people relatively easily within a two or three year window. I talk to a bunch of those Series A, Series B companies every day, and they're on that type of trajectory. Every startup is a, is a one point addition to the amount of startups. But your point is that could be 100, 200, 300 people who are now working for that startup who've got equity, who are now also locked into the other dynamic that's come through, that they're, they're now locked in for typically a 12-year exit before there's a, the standard liquidity event where they cash out. So not only have we increased the size of the pool of people, We've also increased the length of time that those people are tied into those startups before the traditional sort of li liquidity event where they could cash out. And remember, Stephen, that that 12-year average, go back to uh, the, the early 2000s, it was seven years. So, so we're, we're, we're not just talking, we're, we're talking not, not just a point in time where, where, where companies are taking longer. That's been a trend year over year, steadily getting longer and longer and longer. It's reasonable to expect that we may actually, we've had a couple of years where it's been 14 years on average for the companies that went public that year that, that, that took them. We, that, that timeline may get even longer. This is, these are big trends. Now, 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 Stephen, what this has meant is it's not just venture capital involved anymore. And, and read that you have family offices getting involved. You have the the, the uh, private wealth, private banking arms of J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley and the, the big boys, Goldman Sachs Asset Management getting involved. You have all of from what a startup considers non-traditional capital sources starting to get involved in this market. That's just on the equity side. If we go look at the venture debt side, you have a whole bunch of new players coming in. They own they own uh, warrants, penny warrants on the underlying equity when the debt pays off as well. So they get involved on the equity side. Stephen, you have all of these players that are coming in that are don't have that same time horizon, come from different backgrounds, traditionally in more liquid markets, 
places where they can hedge and do all these kind of really cool things against the instruments. And they're coming into this venture capital world. They're coming into this startup world. And as that timeline gets longer, they're going to either expect that that same infrastructure exists here, or they're going to go build it themselves. They're going to go build that whole set of infrastructure that allows them the same type of financial flexibility to get access to cash earlier that they're used to in the markets they come from, but doesn't yet exist here. That's going to be the second major trend that drives it. Yeah, that's, that was what came for me out of the newsletter. It's not that there's more money coming from the traditional VCs. It's more money coming from different sources than traditional VCs as well in addition to. Yeah. And, and Stephen, what's, this is really overturned traditional dogma. Go back a decade even. If you went and sat down, and, 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 and I've done it in, in a past life with endowments, with foundations, the like, to a T, they'd all say, we love venture capital. We love funding startup. It's a great story. It, it brings more people along. It's got all this upside. And by the way, the returns are as good or better than we can get anywhere, posting on average 20% returns a year. But, but the startup world can't possibly handle more cash. There's a limited number of startups that you can't have too many dollars chasing too few startups that will compress returns. Stephen, we've 10x'd the amount of money that's flowing into startups in a decade, and returns haven't changed. It's why there's clearly a, a much, much, much bigger market than anyone previously previously expected. That that has completely changed the game here. Now, the, the underlying dynamic, Stephen, it's not that all venture capitalists return 20% a year. There's this wide distribution. You've got a, a, a brand new, uh, they launched their first fund in 2018 at, uh, out of Israel funding cybersecurity startups. They raised a, a $54 million fund. Stephen, they returned an average of 300% a year to their investors, 300% a year on a $50 million fund. That's wild. But that gives at the other end of the spectrum, you have a bunch of people raise a first fund, they fund 20, 30, 40 startups, they all go bankrupt and you never hear from them again. But it's that hope. It's that, that long tail of distributions of a handful of firms that can return tremendous money that keeps driving more and more and more people in. It's yes, your average return is good, but even more so you get the potential upside of hitting a tremendous home run. That emotionally drags investors in. Not only can that dramatically boost your returns even with small allocations, it's the emotional buy-in of, hey, now I get to go to cocktail hour and talk about this extraordinary thing no one could have possibly expected. Stephen, that is so wildly compelling. We like as a as a sort of as a yeah, species to be able to put a small amount down and return huge. This is the classic lottery ticket type thought process. So, what's that third trend? Then I'm conscious of time here. What's that third trend you're seeing? Regulations have and increasingly are becoming more and more investor friendly. And this has been, this is a long arc. It's likely going to continue. That doesn't mean there won't be bumps along the way. But we have seen uh, the accredited investor standard got updated last year, the year before, widen the pool of people that are, that are eligible. Um, the the uh, qualified institutional buyer, which is a more 
uh, owner is standard. You have to be substantially bigger. Again, got updated. It's now a wider pool of, of people and companies are eligible to qualify. Um, we've seen uh, that the SEC recently has been pushing forward with new disclosure requirements, looking to make late stage private companies disclose more financial data, more information to potential investors in the secondary market. That information disclosure, if I'm trying to evaluate something, more data means I can do a better job evaluating them. I'm more likely to invest. You're going to widen the pool of people. You don't have to be, quote, in the know. You can have the same access to information. We're updating the definition of an exchange that's going to start to pull in some of these marketplaces we've been talking about, Stephen. It's going to force them to, to meet higher standards, better execution, uh, better capital requirements, again, de-risking engaging with those marketplaces for investors. I mean, we, we can keep going down the list. What, what you have, Stephen, is you have a regulator who's recognized these private markets are orders of magnitude bigger than they were when the regulations were built. The regulators have done a fantastic job to date of starting to widen the pool. We have the Jobs Act that, that created new ways to fund companies, widen the pool of eligible investors. Now they're looking at the regulations and going, well, we also need to make sure we have better investor protection in there. And that's going to make it a safer environment for investors, especially people with lower net worths, less sophisticated investors. It's going to make it safer and easier for them to participate in this market. That is, that'll continue for years to come. And it sounds, you covered it in the newsletter, it sounds like the SEC's catching up, starting to see the big trends here and putting what I took from the newsletter as appropriate regulations and oversight in place. And, and this has actually been a really healthy trend, Stephen. I, 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 hats off to the regulators. And, and there's good, there's always stuff that could be done better and so on. Put that to the side. They've largely taken, if not a hands-off approach, the wrong way of phrasing it. They've given this the room it needs to grow so it can attract new capital, so new startups can get funded, so that new types of markets can emerge without being too heavy-handed with the regulations. Now they're looking at this market and going, we have billions, tens, hundreds of billions of dollars flowing through these markets. They're working fairly well, but it's time we start taking a look and saying this is way more mature than it was just a few years ago. It's an appropriate time to start looking at how can we put rules of the road in place so that we don't have bad actors come in and try and take advantage of a, of a wild west market let's keep it on the path it's on let's set the regulations in place so that they remain healthy markets going forward so just to summarize three trends more money coming from different places and appropriate regulation catching up let's start to pivot now because my job is to corral you into keeping this to half an hour which is always fun every friday morning I don't, start... I don't envy you, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you have to write the newsletter. I have to keep you on topic for half an hour. I've got um, the much easier job. Let's be clear. <laughs> I think you do. So let's start to predict ahead. Let's start to see, you know, we've got a snapshot in time. As you mentioned, 2021, biggest year for startups, both from a, a number going IPO and the amount of money flowing into that market. What do you see going forward? So, Stephen, again, we're, we're kind of come back to the more, 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 more here. Three big ones. More liquidity, more complexity, more bundling. And, and we're going we're gonna to knock down all three here. 
The liquidity, I think, is the most obvious one here. We're talking about more money flowing in. We're talking about investors with different time horizons than previously. That's going to drive more demand for cash for equity today. But what that's going to mean, Stephen, is a bunch of companies are going to emerge that help facilitate that. And that's very, very, very exciting to me. We're already seeing it today with, with Forge Global and with Carta X and with shares put uh, with Equity Zen and, and, and the other uh, marketplaces there we're, uh, on equity. We're seeing it on the debt side with Equity B who's facilitating debt markets. Wildly exciting stuff. That's really just the beginning. I expect those marketplaces, they're young, they're still doing um, Carta is, is growing by wild numbers, Stephen. They, they, they went from uh, doing almost nothing. They just got launched in, in, in 2019. They really only put big numbers on the board last year. This past year, they did $7.5 billion in secondary transactions. For, from, a, from a tens, maybe small hundred million number just two years later. I mean, the growth rate on these is wild, but they're 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 selling into a market, they're building into a market that has the potential already today to handle hundreds of billions in trades. I mean, they're still just a small player. They're the among the biggest, but it gives you a sense of the scale. If they did nothing else, they've got a 10x, 100x opportunity just keeping doing what they're doing, never mind adding on more capabilities, new types of clients, the like. Yeah, and I mean that was the thing for me. I mean, seven and a half billion sounds a lot of money, but against the the TAM, if you will, of the amount of people who've got equity in the amount of startups in the amount that they've raised, you know, you put that market landscape and that total addressable market together, it's huge. And seven and a half billion sounds a big number when you look at it. It's tiny when you look at it in scope of the overall. The, the growth rates here, Stephen, are, 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 are frankly unimaginable in many cases. I mean, Equity B just posted their, their numbers. They, they've done a fantastic job. They, they create a marketplace to, to finance employee options. So an employee owns options. They need a lot of cash to go exercise those options, own the underlying equity. They can go to Equity B. They can get debt financing for that through the marketplace of lenders. Equity B, Stephen, this past year... Uh, Grew the number of employees one side of the market um, by over 300%. They grew the other side of the market, the number of letters, lenders by over 400%. And, and to, to 12,000 lenders. I mean, Stephen, we're not talking about growing like 10 lenders to 40 lenders or whatever it is. We're talking about growing thousands of lenders. I mean, th th this is absolutely wild growth rates. But again, it's a comment on they're providing a, a much needed solution into a truly massive market. What I expect here, Stephen, is we're going to see the existing players continue to grow by absurd growth rates. This, isn't, this may not be your 100%. At some point, you can't grow 100% when you're that big. The law grow. of big numbers kicks in eventually, but it, it sounds like these guys are on – the ground floor, if not the first floor of a hundred story building, they're not on floor 90. Exactly. And Stephen, that's good. That's going to drive a flywheel. It's as you get more uh, marketplaces in here, as you get more market participants, you're going to get more automation in here. We can talk about uh, using a blockchain for, for your shareholder registry. We can talk about tokenizing uh, the shares. We can talk about kind of basic automation of, 
uh, matching trades and executing orders. We'll get standardized legal documents in terms of how stuff is bought and sold and lent and so on. All of this comes with maturity, with volume, but it kicks off a flywheel and that's super, super, super powerful. That was the thing that was most interesting for me. There's been a lot of talk about DAOs and that's kind of, I think, the next level of the iteration and, and kind of moving these to digital autonomous organizations. I think there's some steps before that that you can just put some automation in place ahead of a fully decentralized organization. Share ownership you know, laying out cap tables, you know, but there's a number of different things you can see. And we're already seeing that happen, particularly in the DeFi space as those companies come to VC and get equity. But I think you're going to, I think the point that you and I agree on is you're going to see that for non DeFi and non crypto native, that the evolution and the trends that are going on there are going to spill into anybody doing insurtech, medtech, fintech. They're going to move out of the DeFi space into the overall market as a whole, just because they improve the overall process. I mean, is that what you're thinking as well? Correct. But And Stephen, it's important to hit on. It's not that these companies lacked the ability to, to create that type of automation before. It's that when the market is small, the revenue opportunity, the volume you take on, it's cheaper, it's easier. It makes more sense to do it with people. As that market gets bigger and bigger, you're facilitating more trades, you're facilitating more types of trades. That's when you start building in the automation that'll lower the cost of servicing each one. It'll lower the transaction costs. It, what you're doing is you're creating a lower cost base to execute the trades. You're going to end up bringing down the amount you charge per trade, whether it's a spread or a flat fee, the interest rate. You're going to increase the volume and you're going to end up net with more revenue. Even though you might drop the price by half, you're going to quadruple the volume you shove through there. It's going to double your revenue. And that becomes a, a, a flywheel. We've seen this in other markets, Stephen. When you lower the transaction costs, when you lower the cost of servicing, you build in that automation, even though you're, you're reducing the amount you make per trade, you have a multiplier on the number of trades you can support. And that just feeds back and back and back and back. And it becomes a, a race to take on as much volume. The faster you can get that cost base down, the more price competitive you can be, the more volume you can attract. And this, I mean, let's go all the way back. This isn't just a, a, a securities market statement. This is the same core flywheel that Amazon built their entire business on. It's, hey, if we can get more volume, we can lower our costs, we can make it cheaper, and we'll get more volume again. And that is hugely powerful. Yeah, and, and, and that's across all of this landscape. It's the impression I'm getting from what I'm hearing here. It's, it's not just one part of this. It's that automation and scale is happening at all levels, whether that's the share, the equity shareholders, whether that's the VCs, whether that it's bringing in new entrants because the barriers to information are different. Those flywheels are happening. There's multiple flywheels all spinning off each other is the impression I'm getting here. And and that it leads us into the, those two other topics. They, they really sit on top of that, that core flywheel here, Stephen. What the first is, is, is complexity. When I say complexity, 
there are a whole bunch of products that if you go to equity markets, you go to debt markets and the like, we know what those financial products look like. We can talk about things like ETFs. We can talk about things like uh, securitized products, so, so mortgage-backed securities. We, we can start creating these products in this market. They are very, very, very powerful. So just talking about a couple of them, an ETF-type instrument, or we, we can call it an index-type instrument, allows you not to have to bet on the individual parts, but rather bet on the rising tide. We're, we're already seeing the first of the uh, uh, publicly posted indices. Let's split that, split that apart. An index is just a tracking mechanism. You can then go build a fund that then tracks the index. In order to do that, you need to be able, if you're managing a fund, as the index changes, this company got bigger, this got smaller, we added this one to the index, we dropped that one. The fund needs to be able to move in and out of the underlying securities so that it has the same makeup as the index. Well, you can only get in and out of stuff if it's there's a reasonable trading volume. You can only get in and out of stuff if those transaction fees start coming down so it makes sense, it's economical to get in and out of it. But as that volume increases, that fund, that becomes a wonderful way to give people access to the entire rising tide. We, we're already seeing the indices. We're already seeing a couple of smaller private funds launch. We're going to see many, many more as that underlying market becomes more liquid. We're going to see many more funds get spun up. I'm sure we're going to see more indices as well. So we're going to end up with, you know, the ARK Innovation Fund takes this approach, obviously, and so do hundreds of other ETFs focused on liquid markets that are publicly traded assets. We're going to see the same evolution for private assets. You're going to be able to get an ETF or some type of product that's tracking non-publicly traded assets, is your point. Index tracking fund, and, and we're going to see indices evolve, Stephen. Um, the U.S. took home about half the venture capital dollars last year. You can imagine having a global uh, index. You can imagine having a, a U.S. index. You can imagine having a U.S. fintech index, a U.S. biomedical index. Again, it, it, it takes each one of these kind of sub-markets getting big enough to facilitate that, starting to get the liquidity. There is a lead time here. But as they get to that point, once you have the quote-unquote formula of how do you spin up an index and then build a fund that tracks it, you, you start to get intuition around what are the thresholds we need in terms of size, liquidity, trading volume, et cetera, in order for the fund to work. And as you break through those thresholds, you copy and paste the business model, spin up another, 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 another fund, another, another, another index. So that I think we've covered one and two there. Third prediction that you so, see so going? I, I do, I do want to I, I hit two other big ones in, in the complexity because they're, they're, I expect them to emerge even though I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of evidence to date, it follows a natural trajectory of where markets go. Um, one is the derivative space. So right now, for the most part, if you want to make bets on the direction of a startup getting more valuable or less valuable or so on, you got to buy the equity. There's fairly few other options. You can start creating an options market for this. That's not just I want to nakedly bet and, and using that term deliver, deliberately, I don't own the underlying shares. I want to nakedly bet on it going up or going down. You're, you have a whole bunch of hedge funds. Again, those non-traditional investors who have come into this market, 
they're used to being able to hedge the direction of where stuff goes. Hey, I think fintech is going to do better than biomedical this year. They're going to make directional bets on the whole thing. Those derivatives, options, call and put options, other types of derivatives are hugely important instruments in being able to do this. But in order for that to work, again, you need that underlying liquidity. You need someone to go and build that thing. You also need control of the actual of the actual shares and payment and so on that comes with that automation. So derivatives, generally, I expect it to start with options that are straightforward, and then it will get more and more complex. In the debt space, Stephen, we've seen really only two things emerge at scale to date. It's a fund providing debt for, for options financing or a marketplace with an equity B connecting lenders and buyers. Well, Stephen, you can package debt into securitized products. You can have what's effectively SaaS-backed uh, SaaS assets, um, SaaS-backed securities. You can have options-backed securities, if we can put it that way. Again, what you what you do there is you take a bundle of, of not just a single loan to a single employee, you bundle loans to many employees across many companies. You create a, a special purpose vehicle, you dump it in there, and then you create tranches. The, 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 the least risky tranche uh, might have uh, the, the interest rate and get the rights to the underlying equity when the company goes public. The more risky tranches are going to pay a higher interest rate or maybe they simply uh, are, are priced lower, but they have no upside attached to the equity. Stephen, we, we know what this securitized product roadmap looks like. Again, what it takes is, is a bigger market, a more liquid market. But what it does for buyers is rather than have to take exposure on a company by company, employee by employee basis, I instead can take exposure across many of them. And I'm, I'm talking this about- This is the classic CDO for- mortgage-backed securities type model that got us into trouble in 2008. So, but so, we'll move past. But, but, it, but no, it's, we, we the, it's the same the, model you're saying. You correct. basically and, and those, take those, a tranches of debt, package that up, put a rating against it, and you can buy and, and sell that sort of collateralized set of uh, of debt obligations basically so, so co correct Stephen, but but i i, I want to I, I don't want people to take away the wrong message a, a, any tool can be abused a hammer can be a weapon securitizing debt is very 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 powerful it opened up the mortgage market in this country it allowed home ownership to increase dramatically over time it dramatically lowered the cost of getting mortgages and then it was wildly abused that that's not a comment on the tool in the wrong hands. A hammer is a weapon, but that doesn't mean hammers are bad. They're still useful for putting nails on the wall. I would say the exact same thing here about securitization. It is a tool used in the right hands. It's quite valuable. It, it, it can do tremendous amounts of good in the wrong hands. Yes, absolutely. can do harm. So trying to bring us home here, we've got one more big trend. We're already past our 31, 30 minutes in. Let's go quick through this trend and then try and summarize up for the list. So, so the last piece here, Stephen, it, it's a state of maturity one. We're going to see bundling. Um, and, and what I mean by more bundling is we're talking as, as we're going through this, we're talking about this piecemeal. You've got these people that are doing options financing. You've got these equity markets. You've got the shareholder registry that tracks who's doing what. And you're going to build automation. Stephen, most of these things are more valuable stitched together under a single roof in a single company than they are standalone. 
And the expectation should be over time, not only are the piece parts going to get bigger, you're going to start seeing people try to combine them in novel ways. You've already seen the just barely the beginnings of this. Carta launched, uh, made an acquisition, launched Carta X. Carta is a shareholder registry service. They've attached some other stuff, 49A valuations and the like, but they then built this massive tack on like, hey, if I'm controlling your registry and you want to buy and sell equity, well, I can automate that whole process if I just build a marketplace on top. So they did that with Carta X via an acquisition. Uh, Morgan Stanley uh, uh, bought a company called Solium, a competitor. They've started spinning up a whole program in their private wealth arm, in their private banking arm, to go and give uh, ultra high net worth, minimum $20 million net worth, access to early stage startup. Again, those other types of investors coming in, again, more volume in the secondaries. You're they're, they're also, by the way, a participant. NASDAQ is spinning out their, their secondary market for equity. Morgan Stanley is one of the funders of that new joint venture. So they've also got a stake in a secondary market. Stephen, that is just the beginning of this type of bundling. We, we can talk about the, the, the challenges around investor relations generally. If you're a uh, venture capital fund or another type of fund, how do you manage the shareholder registry? How do, you, how do you fund companies? How do you get access to liquidity? How do you stitch liquidity together across many different secondary markets? This is a whole stack. You, we could put the whole shareholder registry plus market to the side. And we're talking about an entirely different stack where I'm stitching together liquidity and giving somebody the cash and treasury management, giving somebody the reporting against that. Stephen, we could go another direction and stitch the, the option financing in with the shareholder registry if we wanted. Again, I'm, I'm tracking who owns what. I'm tracking the vesting schedule of their employees. Well, if I'm tracking the vesting schedule, don't I want to give an option to those employees to actually own the underlying equity? I got to attach the options financing to the shareholder registry. Stephen, we're going to see wild experimentation across the board as people say, hey, I've got this stack. I'm going to, I'm going to solve all of the startup employee problems. I'm going to solve all the startup uh, investor relations problems. I'm going to solve all of the venture capital investor relations problems. We're going to see these different stacks emerge that bundle various components of this, trying to solve basically all of the problems for subsets of the market. And that's going to be a wild place for, for experimentation. So, so we're going to see almost super apps that pull all these various components and, and what have been single product feature companies, if you will, are going to come together and we're going to see cap table management providing a basis for all of these different services that can go around it so that it's a one-stop shop for both sides of the equation, both the people working at these startups, the people who want to provide debt to these startups, the, one, the people who want to provide equity to the people who want to invest in indexes based off a pool of stuff, all of that comes together. I see there's probably space for three or four players, and it sounds like those players are starting to emerge based on the ones you've talked about there. We're, we're so early, Stephen. It, it's And what you'll see is, is some of this will be done organically. It'll be built within the, the, the existing companies. 
a lot of this will happen via acquisition. Somebody says, hey, there's this subset of the market. Nobody's doing options yet. Nobody's doing whatever yet. And they build a company around that, a bigger established player, a shareholder registry, a secondary market, a, a whatever market goes, hey, that is more valuable as part of the overall apparatus, as opposed to try and compete and build a whole new market and a whole that that options thing or whatever it is will have its own mini flywheel. They'll simply tack it on to there. They built so, a feature. They built correct. a feature and, and, that's part it, of a bigger stack. And it'll lower the transaction cost. It'll lo- they'll share the same infrastructure. They'll bring in a new set of, of, of investors, of funders, different than the ones they already have. And that'll continue to accelerate that flywheel. Stephen, th- this, all of these come back to as we build more products, as we build uh, uh, more financial products, new types of stuff, as we bundle stuff together, it's more valuable together than in parts. As we get more capital flowing in, all of these just continue to accelerate that flywheel. That is a decades long growth trajectory. As each thing comes on, it makes, it's not just additive, it's exponential in the growth. That's awesome, awesome place. If you're an employee, it means more, more access to cash. If you're an early investor, it means more access to cash. If you're mm-hmm. a founder, it means you can make the equity more valuable for them. Stephen, this is a, a phenomenal trajectory. Whether you're, you're part of a startup, whether you're funding a startup, whether you're an employee who's getting equity, it's wildly powerful, fantastic place to be. So I think on that set of sentences, we've got a wrap. The objective I have every week is to keep you to 30 minutes. I fail every week. You've been listening to the Fat Tailed Thoughts podcast, where we bring you the makings and workings of money, fintech, and crypto. Thank you very much for listening. We recommend you go and check out the newsletter. Go like and subscribe the show, and we'll speak to you next week. Thanks very much for listening.